Today we're in Mark 11, taking a break from our study in the book of Acts because it's Palm Sunday. And so today we're going to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then next week we are at the park, as Jesse said in the view, 9.30 a.m. Really want to encourage you to come out, but bring somebody that you know that doesn't, isn't walking with God, that doesn't know the Lord. And um, we just want to be praying that God just moves and touches lives and heart. But today we are in Mark 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And if you could follow along as I read, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing? Loosing the colt. And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, and so they let him go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when they had looked at, when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can gather like this in your name, to worship you, to declare that you are our king, to declare your greatness, to declare that you are the one who died and rose. And Lord, we, we, we take such comfort in knowing that it was through your death and resurrection that we have life. And today as we look at this scene that represents your triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on that week before you would go to the cross or that week that you would go to the cross. Lord, we pray today that our hearts would be touched, that we would, your Holy Spirit would meet us, that you would speak to us, that, that Lord, we would get a glimpse today of who you are and what you desire to do in our lives and through our lives. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine driving by a church, and outside you see a group of people who are celebrating. And as they're celebrating, there's a couple that is walking through the crowd of the people on you know, both sides, standing both sides of the outside the door of the church. The man is dressed in a black tux. The woman is dressed in a white dress, a beautiful white dress. They get into a car that has written on the back of it in white shoe polish, just married. And behind it are tied some Coke cans and some empty Coke cans. And with just one glance, 
you know a lot about that scene. You know that this is a couple that just got married. You also can imagine a little bit about their past. That it was probably, you know, started with them meeting and then they dated a while. And then there came the day when that young man got down on one knee and asked this girl, the girl of his dreams, if she would spend the rest of her days with him. And then they went into months of planning the biggest party that they would ever throw and their wedding reception and you'd know a little bit about this couple's future as well, that it would start with a, a honeymoon, a, a, a week or so of, of bliss in some romantic spot. And then they would come home and you would know that there would be some adjustment that would need to take place as the two of them would now have to learn how to share a bathroom and share a closet and, and with a, a person of the opposite sex. They'd have to learn, you know, the right way and the wrong way to roll the toothpaste and, and to put the toilet paper, you know, on the way that it's supposed to go. And you would guess that in a few years, they might even welcome a tiny little screaming human into the world. And then they would have to spend, you know, they'd be going through that process and that season of, of learning how to be mommy and daddy. Isn't it amazing? That in just one glance, you'd be able to have a pretty good guess about their past, their present, as well as their future. Well, in the scene before us here in Mark chapter 11, that's known as the triumphal entry of Jesus, it's a scene that is pregnant with meaning that is both past, present, and future. And we want to consider this today, the meaning of, of this scene, both past, there's a prophetic aspect, present, what did it mean to those who were there that day as Jesus was writing in, and future, what does it mean to us? This event is known as Palm Sunday. In fact, if you look back at verse 8, it says, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And John's gospel tells us that those were palm branches that they spread on the road. And that's why it gets, this is called Palm Sunday. But it's a day that we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. And I want you to note that this is the only time in the entire ministry of Jesus where he actually accepted public praise. Any other time where the people would try to praise him or make him king, he would always remove himself from the crowd. He would always move on to the next place, the next city. But on this particular day, he actually orchestrated this entire event. I want you to consider that, first of all, he picked the time. That it was the beginning of the Passover week. And this was symbolic because during the Passover feast, lambs would be slain. The Passover was that event that, that chronicled Israel's deliverance from Egypt. When they were in bondage there in Egypt for some 400 years and God sent Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And so God ended up sending a series of plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. The last one being that the angel of death would fly over Egypt and he would take the firstborn in every single house except for the houses where the blood of a lamb had been put on the doorpost of the house. 
And so that's why they called it Passover, because the angel of death was passing over, and only those homes that had the blood of the lamb would be protected. And so they celebrated this every single year to commemorate that deliverance. And during Passover, there would be hundreds of thousands of lambs that would be slain. In fact, they, they, there was one lamb that would be slain for every 10 family members. And so Josephus uh, tells us that during this time, there were upwards of 200,000 lambs that were slain in Jerusalem during Passover. And it's interesting if you recall when Jesus was beginning his public ministry and he came there to the Jordan River and he walked into the Jordan River so that John the Baptist could baptize him. Remember remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus orchestrates this event that it would happen at the beginning of Passover because Jesus was coming to be the final Passover lamb. That there wouldn't be a need for any other lambs to be slain because he was going to give his life as slain for the the sins of all of the world. But here's what's interesting. During the Passover, each lamb that was brought to the temple to be sacrificed, it had to be examined by the priest. Because it had to be a lamb that, that was without spot or blemish. And so they would very intensely examine them. And that's interesting because we read in Matthew's gospel, if you read Matthew's account of, of this particular week in the life of our Lord, Jesus goes through this very intense scrutiny and examination from the religious leaders. They were looking for spots. They were looking for blemishes. They were looking for something in his life that they could condemn him of, but they came up empty. And so they had to hire some guys to make something up. In fact, remember when Pilate, he was um, having his interview with Jesus. Remember what he said? He came out and says, I don't find any fault with this guy. He's literally, he could have said, he's without spot or blemish because he was. So Jesus picked the time that it was the beginning of the Passover week because he was to be the final Passover lamb. He also picked the day. And the day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem for his triumphal entry was the 6th of Nisan, or April 6th. And this also was very strategic because Daniel the prophet gave an incredible prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, it's one of the most fascinating prophecies in all of the Bible. I don't really have time to go into it in detail today, but I'm going to summarize it for you, that basically Daniel prophesied that an emperor would give a decree that the people of Israel would be able to leave their place of exile because the Babylonians had come in to Israel and they had taken captive the people of Israel and they had carted them off to Babylon and then the Persians came into power. And so the people of Israel were living in exile and the, the city of Jerusalem had been ransacked in that invasion. It had been left desolate. So Daniel prophesied that the emperor would give a decree that the people of Israel would be able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And this is what Daniel said, that once that decree was given by some emperor who was going to come on the scene, that once that decree was given, you could begin to count, and it would be 173,880 days until the Messiah would show up. Well, here's what happened. On March 14th, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes gives the decree. 
that the Jews could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So you start the clock, you start counting 173,880 days, and it brings you to April 6th, AD 32, the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. It was an incredible fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, again, if you want to know more about the Daniel 9 prophecy and its uh, indication or, or uh, the aspects that it relates to that still haven't occurred that'll happen in the tribulation, go to our website, type in Daniel 9. We have many, many studies on that there. But it was an incredible prophecy, incredible fulfillment. And this was a day of celebrating. I mean, picture all these people lining the streets outside the city. Here comes Jesus riding in, and, and they're waving these palm branches, and they're singing, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it was also a day of sadness, because Luke's gospel tells us, I want you to picture this, that as the people are celebrating and chanting, Jesus was weeping. In fact, the word that that Luke uses is that Jesus was, it was like convulsing, like he was really, really crying. Why was Jesus crying? Well, Luke tells us it was because the people didn't really understand what was happening. He puts it this way in Luke 19, verse 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is sad because he's seeing into the future of the people of Israel. And he knows that in 37 short years, in AD 70, that the Roman general Titus is going to lead the Roman army into Jerusalem, and they are going to ransack the place, and they're literally going to take the temple, and they're going to tear it down, not leaving one stone upon another. And the people of Israel would be dispersed, and get this, the nation of Israel from that point forward, AD 70, would not exist for 2,000 years. It wouldn't happen until in 1948, there in May of 1948, that the nation of Israel was reborn. So Jesus, he picks the time, he picks the day, and he picked the place. It tells us that he, the Messiah, was going to come through the eastern gate there in Jerusalem. We're told that in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And because of that verse, the rabbi said, when the Messiah shows up, he'll come through the eastern gate. And this is exactly where Jesus is riding into. And so this is the first time that he is really publicly revealing himself as the Messiah. So he picks the time, he picks the place, he picks the day, he also picks the means that he would ride in on a donkey that had never been ridden. Why a donkey? I want to give you three reasons. There's probably more, but I want to focus in on three. The first was to fulfill a prophecy. You see, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah the prophet said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king. Everybody say your king. Your king. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That means a donkey that had never been ridden. Now, this prophecy was given by Zechariah 550 years before this event. And he was prophesying how the Messiah would ride into the city. That he would come on a donkey, declaring himself to be king. So number one, he chose a donkey to fulfill that prophecy. Number two, he was coming on a donkey because it highlighted really the nature of his kingdom. You see, the kingship of Jesus was marked by humility. And Zechariah said, behold, your king is coming, but he comes lowly, riding on a donkey. And this presented an incredible contrast. You see, any Roman soldier who, who was watching this event, they, they would have been laughing. To them, this would not have been a triumphal entry. The Romans, they knew how to throw a triumphant entry. You see, anytime one of their generals would go off to battle, and if he conquered a, a city or a, a country or a group of people that numbered over 5,000, that he was able then to, he was awarded with a triumphant entry parade. And this is what it looked like. He would come back riding into Rome, and he would ride in on a great white stallion. Behind him would be the king or the leaders of the people that he just conquered, as well as the soldiers that had been captured. Any of the jewels and any of the spoil would be in a cart coming behind them. And behind all of that would be his army marching proudly because of their victory. The people would line the streets and they would be cheering and all across the, the streets they would put flower petals so that as they were stepping on the flowers, the crushed flowers would put forth this beautiful aroma into the air. And then there would also be the aroma of barbecue, of burning, <clears throat> burning beef because there was a great feast that was going to take place at the end of that parade. So that was the Roman triumphant parade that they would give to their generals. And picture that or contrast that with what we're reading about here. Here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey. They're waving palm branches. There's a little group of just common people and they're, they're singing, they're chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no conquered army there's no spoil there's no jewels there's no army proudly marching behind him the romans would look at this like what a joke but get this it's interesting that about 40 days after this there would be the victory the the emblems the the evidence of the victory of jesus as 5,000 souls, we read about in the book of Acts, that we've seen that, come to Christ. In the very, very beginning of the book of Acts, Peter's first sermon, he preaches 3,000 people get saved. And then in Acts chapter 4, uh, just a short time later, another 2,000 get saved. And we see 5,000 conquered, not by force, but by the gospel, by the love and the grace of Jesus. It's a beautiful scene. So he chose the donkey to fulfill 
prophecy. He chose the donkey to illustrate the nature of his kingdom, that he comes in love and humility, not in force. But the third reason he comes in on a donkey is because it presents an interesting picture. I want you to notice there at the end of verse 3 when Jesus says, if anybody asks you why you're loosing the colt, just tell them the Lord has need of it. That's an interesting phrase. It presents a very interesting paradox for us. The Lord has need. That's a paradox. That Almighty God, the Lord, would have need of anything. But it's interesting because we read in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus needed to borrow Peter's boat in order to preach a sermon. Remember Mark 4, the crowd is pressing in upon him and it's getting to the point where he's standing now in the Sea of Galilee, that giant lake, and he's standing there. And so he says to Peter, hey Peter, can I use your boat? And he gets in the boat and he pushes out a little bit and continues his message. He borrows a boat in order to preach his sermon. We read in the Gospels how Jesus borrowed a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, to feed a multitude of over 5,000 people. We'll read later on how Jesus borrows a grave, a tomb, to be buried in so that he can rise. And here we see him borrowing a donkey to ride in for his triumphal entry. And this is the paradox. This is what's really interesting is that our Lord has chosen to put himself in places where he has a need. Paul the Apostle said this about our Lord, that he became rich or he who was rich became poor for our sakes. Why did he choose to become poor? One of the reasons was so that he could partner with us, that he would allow us, in other words, to partner with him in what he's seeking to do in this world. Whether it was fishing for men, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Or wanting to feed a multitude, little boy, can I borrow your lunch? Or in this case, you know, can I borrow this donkey to ride in and and present myself as the Messiah? The Lord puts himself in a place of need to partner with us. But here's what we must understand. The Lord has need, like I need my my five-year-old little grandson Josiah to help me do a project. Last week, we were loading up my truck to go to the dump. And I said to little Josiah, hey, you want to help Poppy load the truck? Now, did I need his help? No. Did him helping me take longer? Yes. Did I have to exercise a lot more patience? Yes. In fact, he almost lost the key to the truck. <laughs> and, there were, and there were times when, when I had to you know, help him because he couldn't lift up you know, what was, was we putting in the truck. I needed to help him. I didn't need his help. Didn't need it at all. It made the job longer. But I'll tell you this, it brought such joy to my heart to watch the look on his face. I'm helping Poppy load the truck. He was so excited. He was so excited to to help. And I think that that's how God sees this. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help. 
but he loves to bless us. And so the Lord chooses to partner with us for our growth. He chooses to partner with us to bless us. And I think he loves to see the look on our faces when we get excited and we watch and see what God does. And it's like, I can't believe that God's allowing me to do this and be a part of this. You know, it's been rightfully said that without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. I think that's true in very many, in in many instances. And so the question is really this, will we be willing vessels? I mean, I think about this week, Easter's coming up. And Easter is one of those times when we have a lot of people that, that don't normally go to church or don't walk with God, that, that suddenly something in them says, you know, I should go to church, it's Easter. And I wonder if the Lord is saying to all of us, you know, I want to reach that guy that you work with. I want to reach that person that you live by. I want to reach that barista that is, you know, makes your coffee in that coffee shop that you go to all the time. But he's wanting us to give an invite. He's wanting us to, to take one of these cards that are out on the counter and say, hey, would you like to come with me to an Easter service? That's at the Moonlight Amphitheater. You know the place where they do all those plays? It's like really, really cool. And, and come and, and who knows? Who knows what would happen if you took one of these cards and just said, you know, hey, come. And suddenly that person that doesn't know Jesus or isn't walking with God, suddenly at the end, they make a decision that day that they're going to follow Jesus. And, and you're sitting there going, wow, I can't believe this is incredible. And God's going, yeah, this is what happens when you partner with me. And all you did was give a simple invitation. Have somebody meet you or, or to pick them up or to sit by them. And I think that's, that's what happens. The question I think God is saying is, look, I want to part, I want to bless you by allowing you to part with me, with me. But will you be a willing vessel? You see, there are times when I'll ask Josiah, hey, Josiah, do you want to help me? And he'll say, he's very polite, no, thank you, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. Now, am I crushed because, oh man, I got to do this all by myself? It's like, no, okay, I'm going to get this done a lot quicker, you know? But I am sad for him because I know he's going to miss out on some fun. He's going to miss out on learning how to do something, growing and developing. And usually when we go, you know, when he helps me with a project and we go do something, we usually end it by going and getting ice cream. And so I'm like, and he's going to miss out on the ice cream. I'm just going to get it by myself, you know, more for me. And I wonder sometimes if that's God's perspective. If God's perspective is like he invites us to partner with us in giving and serving, but we say, no, no, thanks, because we have our own agenda. Or we don't have time. And so it ends up being, it's, it's sad for us. Because we miss out on experiencing, you know, being involved in, in something that he is doing. We miss out on the fun that he has for us. And we miss out on the treat, not ice cream, but the reward that he has for us in eternity. And this is the thing, is that God invites us to partner with him. But he doesn't force us. And that's why I think it's just such a perfect picture 
that Jesus chooses a donkey to ride in on because donkeys are stubborn and strong-willed people. Does that remind you of anybody? (laughs) Okay, I don't want you to raise your hand right now, okay? Don't raise your hand. How many of you, don't raise your hand, are stubborn and strong-willed people? Don't raise your hand. Now you can raise your hand for this. How many of you are married to somebody who is stubborn and strong-willed, all right? (laughs) It's a perfect picture, right? It's a perfect picture. My wife's raising her hand. Yeah, I'm married to somebody who's stubborn and (laughs) strong-willed. It's true. (laughs) But it's so great that Jesus chooses to work through stubborn and flawed vessels like us, right? Because it just illustrates his patience. It illustrates his grace. It illustrates his love. But check this out. This picture gets even better. You see, before the donkey could be ridden, it had to be loosed. Remember, he said, go and loose it. And the same is true for us. Before Jesus could work in our lives, we had to be loosed from all of our sin, from all of our shame. Remember Lazarus? Jesus comes to Bethany. His friend Lazarus has died. He's been dead four days. And Jesus comes and says, roll away the stone. Martha goes, Lord, he's been dead four days. It's going to stink. There's going to be a stench. And Jesus calls, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus walking out, risen. He's walking like this because he's all wrapped up like a mummy. And what did Jesus say? Loose him. Unwrap him. Why? A live person doesn't need grave clothes. Grave clothes are for dead people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus has loosed us. He has freed us from all of our sin and shame. Yes, we can clap to that. He's made us a new creation. We're told that in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But check this out. Before the donkey could be released, it also needed to be redeemed. Fascinating scripture. Exodus 13, 13 says this. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So this is an interesting picture. The Lord says, instructs that before a donkey was born, a lamb had to die so that the donkey could live. And then he connects this picture with the redeeming of sons, the redeeming of men. And that's us. Before we could be released, we had to be redeemed. But good news. We're told in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The word redeem means to buy back something that was lost or imprisoned. And all of us, the Bible says, we were lost and imprisoned to to the bondage of sin. But Jesus redeemed us by his blood. And in redeeming us, he has cleansed us and he has 
freed us from, first of all, the penalty of sin because he paid the price. He took the punishment that we deserve. But he's also freed us from the presence of sin. The Bible says that our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, but as far as the east is from the the west, he forgives our sin, he removes our guilt, and he has freed us, redeemed us from the power of sin so that we can live our lives now no longer needing to be controlled by our flesh, controlled by our lusts, controlled by our passions. But now we can yield ourselves to Jesus and allow him to work in our lives and to use our lives. It's amazing. He's released us. He's redeemed us. He's going to reward us. And one day he is going to return with us. You see, this entry that we're reading about here is a picture of another one, a a triumphant entry. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back for his second coming, that he's going to come and enter through that east gate. What's interesting is right now you go to Jerusalem, the east gate is sealed. There is no gate in the wall. It's been sealed up. But the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he's going to stand on the, the, the Mount of Olives. When we go to Israel, and we're planning a trip in 2024, okay? When we go to Israel, we have a, a meeting that we do right on the Mount of Olives when we come into Jerusalem. And we stand there on the Mount of Olives looking at that gate. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. That gate's going to open. And he's going to come through. And we're going to be with him. That is coming. But in the meantime, the Lord wants us right now to be partnering with him. To be yielded to him. To receive him as our king. To make sure that our our lives have been given to him. That we've embraced what he did on the cross for us. In just a moment, we're going to be celebrating, wrapping up our, our morning by celebrating communion together. But, but I want to share a true story with you. One evening, there was a woman who was driving, and she noticed there was a huge truck behind her that was following uncomfortably close. So she hit the gas to give herself some distance, but the guy in the truck also sped up and continued to be right behind her. She, she got startled because of this, so she got, she got off the freeway and the truck continued to follow her. She tried to turn down a street to lose the truck, but the driver of the truck ran a red light so he could continue following after her. Panicking, she pulls into a gas station, gets out of her car, and runs, starts running, screaming for help as she's running into the little convenience store there at the gas station. The driver of the truck pulls up behind her, jumps out of his truck, runs to the back door of her car, opens it up, opens it up, and pulls out a would-be rapist that was hiding behind her seat. And you see, from the vantage point of his truck, he was able to look down and see that guy that was hiding. So this woman, she was running from the wrong person. All this time, she's thinking, this guy's following me, and he wants to hurt me, when in reality, he was following her because he wanted to save her. And what I find interesting about that story is that our God, the Bible tells us, is a pursuer. 
The Lord's been called the hound of heaven. He pursues us. But he pursues us not to hurt us, but to save us. But many people run from God. They run from God thinking that he wants to hurt them when he just wants to bless them. They run from him thinking that that, that he wants to destroy their lives when he says, no, 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 The, the devil, he's a thief and a robber who comes to kill and rob and destroy. But I've I've come that you might have life, and that more abundantly. Off the I-10 freeway in Louisiana, there's a giant billboard, or at least there used to be. And right when you're crossing the bridge over, over the Mississippi River, it, it stands and it just almost looks over the, the whole city there. And on that billboard, there was a picture of Jesus on the cross, hanging on the cross with his head down, and underneath it said these words, it's your move now. And really, that's it, guys. Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, went to the cross, to pay the price for our sins so that he could redeem us, so that he could free us. But he says, okay, I did that, but now it's your move. And all he asks is that we would put our faith in him. That we'd admit that I'm a sinner, I need a savior. And here's the thing that I want you to catch as we wrap up this morning. We're going to, in just a moment, partake of communion. Just a moment. In fact, I'm going to have the band come out right now. and, And as the band begins to lead us in worship... As you feel led, wait wait till we start, but as you feel led, you can get up out of your seat. The communion elements are up front here. And we're going to partake of these elements that speak of the body of Jesus. That's a little wafer on top. The body of Jesus that was broken and given for us. Took the punishment that we deserved. And the cup represents the, the blood that was shed to cleanse us of our sins. And so we're partaking of that, recognizing, we're saying, Lord, you are worthy of our praise because you have saved us, you have redeemed us, and Lord, we worship you, we rejoice in you. But the Bible tells us that we should not partake of communion in what's called an unworthy manner. What does that mean? To partake in an unworthy manner means that I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know that he paid the price. I know that his blood is what cleanses me, but I'm choosing to remain in my sin. I'm choosing to remain in my rebellion. And to partake of communion is to do so. It's it's not showing worth. It's almost showing disdain to the body and blood of Christ. So the Bible says, hey, if that's where you're at, if you're in sin, if you're living in sin, if you're in rebellion, you've never given your life to Christ, don't partake. But the other option is open your heart up to Jesus today. Amen. Tell Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner. I am a donkey. Lord, I am. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Forgive me. Save me. I believe in you. And what you did on the cross for me. You, you do that. And Jesus is going to meet you today. And I want to give you an opportunity right now. If you haven't done that to do that. Let's, let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much. For our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you did. In dying on the cross. Taking the punishment that we deserved. We thank you for your blood that cleanses us from all of our sin. And Lord, today we 
just acknowledge that we know without you, God, we, we, we'd be lost. Without you, Jesus, we'd be lost. But Lord, I pray for those that are maybe here today that have maybe never opened up their heart to you or maybe they at one time professed you, but they've been living in rebellion and they've been, been just walk, they've walked away from you. They've been doing their own thing. And today, you know, they're calling. You're calling them to, to come back. You're saying, hey, it's your move. Lord, I pray today that there would be those that would respond to that invitation. 